Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. Big shout out and special thanks to Sarah Schoenfeld, who we've had on, well, twice already, so I could go after this, go look up those episodes, because she has put us in touch with the guest we have today, an author, a librarian, Ali Malnenko. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Very glad to have you and very excited. Uh, writer, librarian, what came first? How did this happen? How did we get here today? <laughs> okay, which came first, the chicken or the library? Exactly. Um, I suppose writing came first. It came first as an act, not as a published person. That took a much longer than I expected, but I have been writing really since I was a kid. Wrote stories when I was little. My very first short story I wrote in like fourth grade. It was deeply dark and very tragic and involved <laughs> a car accident. And my parents were like, oh, okay, hon, this is a fun new project you have. And then I went to high school so I wrote a lot of really angsty poetry as one does in high school continued that through college and then I got out of college and I was still writing but I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it writing short stories but I wasn't actively sending much out and then I started working some really terrible jobs and I was like okay this is not good you know I graduated with a writing degree which unless you get a master's not a whole lot you're gonna do with that so I decided that the only job I had ever liked my entire life was when I worked at the library part-time so I went back and got my librarian's degree then after that I kept writing around my job so i get up at 4 45 in the morning to um, write every day i don't know how anyone's brain works at 4 45 it's not great <laughs> i mean i've been doing it for like over a decade now so now yeah. i'm just sleep deprived it's just my state of existence but the, the problem was is that as much as i love my job I started noticing that when I tried to write at night, if I had a crappy day, it was a very easy excuse to be like, yeah, I'm just going to read my book. I'm not writing, whatever. If I write in the morning before anything touches me, before any bad news or even any good news for anything, most of the world is asleep and I can get the words down. And so it works and I do it, but I super hate it. Don't get me wrong. Every morning when I have to get up, I wonder why I've done this to myself. So I became a librarian and then I got published. So that was great. So now I get to be both. Oh, yay. So it seems writing and reading have always been in your life. It wasn't something that you came to later on. It's just you've always loved both of them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was an early reader. And I was the kid who the greatest day of the week was when my mom took me to the library and I would leave with a stack of books taller than me. Yeah. When you say that you went for your librarian degree, I think a lot of people just, oh, someone says they're a librarian, they're a librarian. So what does it mean? What are you learning to get a librarian degree? To become a librarian, you have to get a master's degree, which I'm just going to, like aside, this is not a diss to the profession, but it's kind of ridiculous that I had to acquire the amount of debt that I had to acquire to do what is basically reader's advisory. I work in an archive now, so I do a lot of research for people. I will admit, I learned how to do better research in library school than I probably knew beforehand, but if you went to college, you learned how to do research. You had to do research for your papers. So... I'm not really sure. (laughs) I can't really think of anything that I truly learned in library school that I'm like, that was invaluable to my job. You have to have good communication skills, but that's not something you can really teach someone, I don't think. You have to read widely. You have to read everything you can get your hands on. And Reader's Advisory is just like a huge part of it. So I was a children's librarian before I worked in the archive. And it's getting the kid who's like, oh, I I read all of those books. There's nothing left to read. And finding him the next book that he's going to love. To do that, you need to know the books that are out there. And that, again, not something you're really taught in school. You will have to get a master's for two years as a librarian because that's the way the system works. 
Because that's the way the system is. Yes. <laughs> I have a friend who refers to it as a union card degree. You have to get the degree to get the job. It's just how it works. Which I don't think is great because I think it also makes it a big deterrent for a lot of people who I think would make excellent librarians who aren't can't get into the profession because financially it's just not viable for them to incur two years of graduate school, three if you want to become an archivist, three if you want to become a school media specialist, which means you're a school librarian, which is even harder because they get paid even less. So it's not great. Here I am with all the bummer bad news. Yeah. No, this is interesting because I have known sort of a people who you've done librarian, well, school degree. I don't know that I ever actually followed up on the questions of like, what does that entail? But what you said, kind of the union card. So if you want to work for a city library or something like that, you've got to be part of a union. Yes, we are in a union. Not all librarians are in unions. Okay. Like the, I, I, work, I work in Brooklyn and we are in a union, but that's not the case across the board. That's just how it worked out here. But I guess I mean union card degree in the sense that you cannot get the job with experience or training. You have to show up and be like, here is my master's degree before you will even get an interview. There's no workaround for that. You can work in libraries. You can work in libraries your whole life and not get the degree, but you will never have the title librarian. It's a very weird system. Anyone would think that what you need to be a librarian, you have to be a nice person because you can deal with people. You have to love books because you want to be excited about what you're talking about. And then whatever library you're in, you just learn about how their library system works. I feel like it should be that way. I wish it was that way. You'd have a more diverse group of people in librarianship if it was that way. I've always said it should be a two-week training course. You sit side by side with a librarian for two weeks to a month, and then you're like, okay, I know what to do now. I'm also a librarian. And then you continue to read and learn about your field and learn about books that come out. And that's all you need to do, but that's not the system they set up. Moving away from this a little bit, because we don't just sink more into these happy thoughts. (laughs) Well, now you mentioned it, that, you know, keeping track of books that are coming out. You specifically, how do you keep track of books that are coming out? Because there is a lot, and as much as we'd like to, we, we don't read them all. So how do you work This is that? true. Yes. Aside from, like, trade journals and the fact that I just spend a ridiculous amount of time in libraries and bookstores, I have to say, I feel like book Twitter is one of my favorite social media sites, and so is Bookstagram, okay. because I find out about so many writers from there. I love blurbs. Blurbs are great. I've never bought a book because of a blurb. Never in my entire life. I've never bought a book be like, oh, Stephen King liked it, therefore I'm going to buy it. Oh. Like, it's cool. Stephen King liked it. Good for that writer. That probably felt good when they found out that day. I will absolutely buy books that people on Twitter are like, I just had my this is the best thing I've ever read in my entire life. That for sure I will do. Are you following specific hashtags? Are there certain Twitter people, Instagram people that you're following? I mean, because I, because I write middle grade, so yes. I read a lot of middle grade. Because I yes. want to know what my peers are doing, and I want to shout about how great their books are, and I want to be excited. I do like a lot of kidlit hashtags or like middle grade book chat. Middle grade book chat's a really good one. They do like a whole thing on Monday nights at like, I think, 9 o'clock, where they have a series of questions, and everybody talks about their their favorite books and they promote other people's books. It's just a really great community. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds weird. Great community and Twitter are never usually in the same sentence. Yeah, that's true. But I feel yeah. like the kidlet, especially middle grade writers on Twitter, I consider some of them like family. I've never met them in real life and I will park the sea to find them if need be. I have genuine and true friendships there. I think that's a good place to find stuff out. And and again, also, I am just a sucker for browsing the aisles. I absolutely fall for books based on their covers. I know you're not supposed to, but I do. 
it will get me to pick it up and read the back for sure. I believe in the artist too. I think the whole don't judge a book by its cover thing is terrible. That's so rude to the artist. We're going to add this in just because I'm going to plug an episode that I did with Leah Nichols. He did Song for Whale. He's the one who did the cover for that. He's done a bunch of covers. And he said, judge a book by its cover because that means I did a good job. That's yeah. what I'm saying. And whenever someone's like, oh my God, the cover of your book is amazing. I'm like, I know. Isn't she the best? I lucked out with one of the greatest artists for this amazing cover. Fully. I love it. I have gotten that from some of my covers. It's true. It's big credit to the cover artist. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's for me too. Like when I'm walking through a store and something catches my eye, I'm like, oh, what's this? When they can convey the essence of what the book is just through the art so that my eye sees it and my brain is, oh, hello. Yes. What is this? That's perfect. Exactly the reaction. Just to focus on this a little bit more. So you're, you're finding out of certain books, you're reading a lot of them, but the ones that you're not reading, if you wouldn't be going back to work in a library with, with younger kids and recommending books to them, what kind of information are you looking for to be able to say, you know, I haven't read this one, but I've seen good things about it. Or, well, is that all you're looking for? Or what are you looking for to, to still point out a book you haven't read yet? Kids love to talk to the librarian at the desk, their favorite thing. So I would talk to them and they would tell me about something that they loved. And I would do what I do for adults now, but the kid version, which is a little mini reference interview where I'm, well, what did you love about it? And, and like, what was the story like? And what was your favorite part? And then from there, I'm like, okay, what would sound familiar? Their favorite part was that it was scary. I'm like, okay, we can move towards more scary books. Right. If their least favorite part, it was scary, but they really liked that there was a detective thing. Then I'm like, okay, we'll move towards detective books. So it's just really through conversation and like listening to them because the great thing about kids is uh, they have no filter whatsoever. <laughs> so they'll tell you exactly what they think, top to bottom, tip to tail, this is the worst thing I've ever read, How Dare, or yes. this is the greatest book, I hug it every night. So yeah. it makes it easy. Yay for with kids! so much more discerning. With adults, they're like, there was nuance, and I'm like, get, 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 get to the part you actually like. That's true. Because <laughs> also, an adult is probably more hesitant. If a book is more popular, they're probably more hesitant to say if they didn't like it, because you're supposed oh, sure. to like it. <laughs> sure. And that's the thing, too, because people try me and I've had people be like well are you gonna write a book for adults and I was like well why should I do that why do you think that that's better and I'm just like you know an adult I am one human adult and I will give a book a hundred pages before I'm like this isn't for me a kid will give a book three sentences and then they're like nope I'm bored I'm out I'm sorry I'm very proud of myself if kids read my books because they got through all 288 pages yeah you preempted the question because I have asked writers before of, of young adult or, or middle grader do people not consider you a real writer because i've heard someone who spoke she's she writes for adult she writes for, for young adult and she said she wasn't viewed as a writer until she wrote an adult fiction yes i absolutely agree with that okay so right now i have two i have one book out i have a book coming out this summer they're both for kids they're both middle grade and i have an idea for an adult book and anytime i've mentioned it in mixed company not my friends. This is not my friends that would say this. But it's like, oh, oh, so you're going to write a real book. And I'm just like, well, except for the ones I already wrote that are very much real. And please show me your book that you wrote. Are they real? It is a real book. And also, I feel like you can make so many more mistakes with adults. So many more mistakes. Like, I have raved about books and then after the fact been like, you know, actually, mm, it wasn't that great now that I think about it. But with kids, if you don't keep them entertained and engaged, they have no reason to keep turning the page. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other options for them to choose from of books that just came out the same month that your book came out, let alone all the books in all the world. Right. They have no reason to sit there and spend their reading time with you unless you bring 
your best game to the table. And it's crazy that people don't understand that. I'm like, do you remember being a kid? I think of this now as you're speaking, and I'm just going to decide it's true, even though I haven't done a study on it. But, (laughs) oh, yeah, here we go. So, you know, full disclosure, I think we can make the statement that because adults are more often genre readers, they'll be a little bit more forgiving also. So someone who's into romance will read all the romances, even though a lot of them could be the same. The writing is just going to be good and not great. Someone's into the thrillers. They'll they'll just read them all because whatever the reading outlet does for them versus a kid is not just like, oh, thrillers, let's read all of them. They're not necessarily going to do that. Right. I think kids read more widely than adults do. Right, and almost more discerning so, in a way. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on this theory. I say that we posit it, and it's true, and that's a fact now. Well, that's so, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On a master's just for that. There sure. you go. I'm going to draw you up one. You get an honorary master's. Okay, okay, hey, great. So now just going back for a second, how did you go from your really dark fourth grade story to your interesting teen poems, and then you actually went to writing a novel? So how did that happen? Then you went from novel to publication. How did that path go? So I was writing short stories, and then I was like, I want to write a novel. So I did, and it was terrible. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll just write another one. And I did, and that one was okay. And I got that published on a small press, and that was a young adult book. So that was very exciting. Indie presses are great, and self-publishing is also great. But if you want to write for kids, it's very hard on an independent press, and it's even harder self-published to get books into libraries and schools. There's just a vetting process that happens when literature is put in front of children. And that vetting process is through traditional publishing, your big five houses. So because I knew I wanted to write for kids, because that is what made me fall in love with writing, that was always my goal. So while I was very happy to get that small press publication and it really gave me a lot of confidence and I'm very proud of that book, I was like, okay, what next? So then I spent, oh, well, let's see, approximately seven, probably more years writing a book. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) This is a fun story. (laughs) So I spent seven plus years writing a book. It was a young adult book. It was science fiction. I loved it with all my heart. I worked on it and I worked on it and I worked on it and I wanted to be as perfect as possible. I was going to get an agent. This was gonna happen and I did I got the agent and I was so excited and we went on submission and the book died on submission and when a book dies on submission for your listeners who might not know that means that every publishing house in the world said no thank you to you (laughs) which feels not great to put it mildly feels not great there were some crying on the floor moments because it had been so much work for so long and then just to reach that wall you know it's like there's so many hurdles you have to get over and so many doors you have to get through with publishing and I was like I got the agent I was like that's it I'm on the right path this is the book and then it wasn't some editors wanted what's called an R&R which is a revise and resubmit and they made the argument that the book is actually middle grade and not YA because the general gist of the story the driving part of the story is a girl looking for her missing grandfather they're like family stories in middle grade I don't agree with this just as an aside I'm pretty sure teenagers are allowed to care about family members (laughs) whatever publishing is weird so I spent probably like six months maybe a little more breaking the bones of this story and trying to convert it from YA to middle grade and I recommend this to absolutely no one because it feels terrible start to finish but I did it and I was very sad and I was very much I I don't think I want to write anymore I was still getting up at 445 every morning and I was like okay either you quit doing this completely or you write something new and I was like all right what were the stories that mattered to you the most when you were a kid? And they were spooky stories, middle grade horror stories. Those were my absolute favorite. Scary stories to tell in the dark ruled my life. 
So I sat down and I wrote Ghost Girl in about six months and I sent it to my agent and she emailed me back and she said, this is your debut. And she was right. Wow. Because she sold it. So it's kind of a wild ride, but I feel like it's important to talk about the ones that aren't simple. I feel like the stories that most people hear is like, oh, I spent one whole year writing my book and then I got published and I got a six figure deal. Yay me. Well, that does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. It does happen. And that's amazing. But that's like really rare. More books die on submission than, than most people realize. And it's just this like gut wrenching thing. You just have to like, OK, I guess I'll find something else for my entire life to be about now. Because I've spent all of this time on this one project. Or at least that was the case for me. Right. And then just to quickly ask, did you land an agent through the regular querying process? Or it was a convention or a friend of a friend sort of thing? I did. I am slush pile. Wow. Also very, I also like to talk about that a lot too, because Twitter does like pitch contests mm -hmm. all the time and they're yeah. great. They're really great. But I always want to remind people that like if pitching isn't your strong point, and I say this because it's not mine, I'm not great at like the two lines. This is exactly what my book's about. Don't you want to read it now? I blather too much for that. Like an elevator pitch, we'd be, we'd be across the parking lot by the time I was done. So I did not do that. I went on the hashtag MSWL Manuscript Wishlist, where agents and editors talk about the kind of books they're looking for. I used YA Sci-Fi, and I scanned through to see anyone who maybe sort of thought this would be up their alley. And I queried a lot of people. I don't know how many. I probably have blocked that out of my mind because it's too depressing to think about. So I queried a lot of agents. And the agent that I got, my agent, Rena, she initially rejected the book. She wrote me back about how this is like such a hard rejection because she loves so much of it, but the ending doesn't work. But normally, normally in my normal, this is how Allie behaves in the world. I would have just been like, okay, thanks and walked away. But I mentioned it to my husband and he was like, why don't you just ask her what she thinks would work? I'm like, I can't do that. I can't yeah. just ask an agent. Like she's a big fancy person. I can't just ask her. He's like, if she doesn't answer you, you won't lose anything. And I was like, okay. So I wrote her back and I was like, I you know, I told her how much I appreciated her enthusiasm and her thoughts and like, did she have any pointers? She wrote me back this giant email wow. about exactly what she thought was working and what wasn't working. And then at the end was like, if you feel like what I'm saying makes sense to you, if this feels like it's hitting in the right place, revise it and send it back to me. Oh. And that's what I did. Yeah. Amazing. So it's like, I really shouldn't be here. So between the, like, if the book died on submission and like prior to that, it was, the book was rejected by the agent I actually signed with. It's been a weird story. Great story. And I love it, but definitely weird. That's part of the thing also is that a lot of people have the same path, but everyone really does have a different kind of path. Absolutely. And that's the thing too. Sometimes like I'll see people who are querying on Twitter talking about like how, why is it taking so long? I'm always like, everyone's path is different. It's just what it's going to be. Maybe the book you're querying right now isn't going to be the book, but the next one will be. You have to hang on to it. Like if it's really what you want to do, you have to hang on to it because it is a lot of doors to get through and it's not easy. And I know everyone's like, I'd write a book if I had time. Well, if you want to write a book, you make time. And then when you write the book, then you got to do all of the steal your heart because people are going to throw so much rejection at you first before you get through it. So that by the time you do, when the book is finally published, you just collapse in exhausted piles. Information. This is what occurs. Yeah. So now focusing on the spooky middle grade, we're using this kind of genre category. What would you say kind of falls in? Spooky MG. What does that encompass? You can be very scary in 
a middle grade book. You really can. It really, it comes down to your editor and your publisher, what they're going to push back against and what they're not. But like, for instance, in the book that I have coming out this summer, there's a scene that is full of teeth. There are teeth everywhere, just teeth on tape. There's teeth loose and everywhere. And I'm like, that's a giant phobia for a lot of people. Teeth make people very uncomfortable. And I put it in a book for eight-year-olds. And I'm completely comfortable with having done that because you can be scary. You can do scary things. Kenneth Opal wrote a book called The Nest, which is absolutely one of the most terrifying books I've ever read. And it's for eight-year-olds. And I'm not exaggerating. If any of your listeners, please go read this book. And if it doesn't terrify you, we need to talk because I'm a little nervous for you. It is beyond scary. I don't want to spoil anything because it goes in places that was unexpected. So you can be scary. And I know a lot of people are like, well, you can't kill anyone. That's also not true. The book is called Ghost Girl. There are ghosts in it. People have died. And when I do class visits, the number one question I get asked the most, because one the deaths occur off screen, is how they died. How did Deanna die? How did she die? And I was like, you guys are real morbid and I love all of you for it. <laughs> morbid fifth graders. You can't have death in it. You're going to get pushback on any kind, anything too gory. The main thing you have to do. So if you want to write horror for middle graders, <laughs> if you want to write spooky stories, you can take them into the darkness. You can write a really dark story. You can bring them into the woods. You can make it scary, but you have to, by the end, bring them back to the light. That is the key element. You can end an adult horror story in absolute dread. There's no final girl and everything is bad and the killer won. You, you can do that with adults. With kids' books, you've got to bring them back out into the light. They have to see themselves as the hero. They have to vanquish the monster. That's the only real rule you have to follow. And otherwise, you can do whatever you like. Wow. Would you separate, when we talk about darkness, is there a difference between kind of like external darkness and internal darkness? As in going emotionally dark versus just going a scary place dark? Some of the topics that are in the two books that I've written, there's grief, there's death, there's bullying from both peers and from parents. There is trauma from a terminal illness. This Appearing House, which is the book that I have coming out this summer, is a haunted house story, but the whole thing is about a girl navigating the trauma of having had a cancer diagnosis and making it through that. How she goes back to feeling like a kid again when she doesn't think she could ever feel like a kid again. That's the story underlying all the scary stuff that I fill it with. Like there's ghosts and there's ghouls and there's walls that are mushy and weird and you can get sucked into them. But the whole story is really about how to live with your trauma, how you learn how to carry it. And I think stories like that are important for kids too because look at the last two years of kids' lives. They've been traumatized. They know what trauma is. The world is scary and kids know this. And if we pretend that it's not, we're, we're lying to them and ourselves and it's a disservice. And I think if you give them stories that talk about the serious things that they deal with, if you give them stories that talk about grief and pain and sadness, because these are elements of existence, then they will have the tools to deal with them when it shows up in their life. I'm a huge believer in that. You give them the sword so they can fight the monster, and one day when they have a real live monster in their life, they'll remember what that feels like, and they'll remember how to come out on the other side. It's important work. I know I'm getting a little soapboxy here, so I'm going to dial it back, but I think... Giving kids these stories is really important. And also, I think that adults, and I'm including parents and teachers, I'm including librarians, we have a tendency to not push this material. Like, I wouldn't push it on a kid, obviously. Kids don't like scary stories, they don't like scary stories. But the ones that do, 
deserve to have the, the stories that they're looking for and to see themselves reflected in those stories. We always talk about how important representation is in books, and it's even more important with kids. Books are, are a window and a mirror. So it's a window into a world maybe you don't know, or it's a mirror showing you a world you do know, and you see yourself in it. That really matters. I had a friend, he read my book, and in Ghost Girl, Z's best friend is named Elijah, and he's overweight, and his father consistently gives him a very hard time about it. Like, kind of in, like, a hey, jokey way, but it's painful and it's hurtful. And Elijah is of the opinion that, like, he's fine with the way he is, and he wishes that his dad could be fine with it, too. And why isn't he good enough for his dad? So my friend read this and called me and was like, I wish I could have given this to me when I was 10 years old. This is exactly what I needed to hear when my dad was doing the same thing to me. That's the power of books. Like that's the magic in storytelling right there is that you can retroactively help heal someone. And more importantly, there'll be a kid out there who will see themselves in that moment and not feel so alone. Do you think it works better or is it kind of better to put these stories in a story that is removed from actual life in the sense that even if you're writing a contemporary ghost story most people are not living in a haunted house so it seems like a different reality to them the fact that it's already in this different reality does that kind of make it easier to then digest the story i think it can go either way i think it comes down to the writer because like i like to put really hard to talk about things and hard stuff bake it into a fun spooky adventure story that's how i serve vegetables i guess or whatever <laughs> i'm mixing my metaphors i'm baking vegetables now my friend linda epstein just wrote a book called repairing the world which is quite literally about a girl who's she's i think 12 years old and her best friend dies in an accident and she has to figure out how to manage that grief and it's contemporary it is straightforward and it is beautiful and it's sad and I hope it wins all the awards because it's so good and it's coming out this summer and I'm fully plugging it. I think you can do it both ways. I think it comes down to like the writer and I think for the kid it comes down to what kind of story they want to be told. Some kids want the whole adventure story and other kids want to see their day-to-day life reflected. Like there's a girl going to school just like I do and dealing with her parents just like I do. There's room for both, I think. Would you say, I recently spoke to a mystery writer and we were talking about how I'd seen this article about balancing romance with your mystery and da-da-da. So would you say writing spooky for middle grade? Okay, this is your personal opinion of recommending trying to find some sort of lighter something to balance the spooky with? Sure. Humor, heart, whatever we'd call it. I have always made the argument that humor, comedy, and horror are the the opposite sides of the same coin. And I think it's because they both elicit an intense reaction. And I think it takes the same kind of work to bring someone to have a jump scare, to like be startled, as it does to bring someone to like bouts of intense laughter. I think it's a very specific skill set. It's about building tension. It's about timing. I've always kind of felt like... That is the flip side. When you want to balance it out, you just get something really funny. And not even like silly, but like legitimately funny. Well, because laughter and I guess you could say the jump scare, they kind of take a person out of themselves. You can't be self-conscious in that moment. Exactly. You're either like startled and gasping and behaving ridiculously, or you're laughing so hard you start coughing. It's one of those things that it elicits such a strong emotional and physical reaction from you. And I just, like I said, I think it... It's the same kind of alchemy happening underneath that brings that out. Hmm. I never really thought about it because I don't really do horror so much. I did speak to a horror writer like a while ago, John the Jens. He writes adult horror stuff. And he was talking when he was describing some of his stories is that you sort of touched on this. And I've spoken about this with other writers before. That if you strip away the, all the horror elements, there is 
this story there that anyone, theoretically anyone can relate to, whether or not you're a horror reader. Oh, absolutely. Storytelling as a thing that has existed for as long as humans have existed, it's empathy. It's like, I'm going to put the story out into the world that says, this is what I felt or thought or experienced. Does anyone know, have any feeling ever been in this place? And then someone somewhere is like, yep, I know that. And now we have that connection. Now we, we share that experience. We human a little better to each other whenever yeah. we have shared experiences. You know, we're a little better humans. So... I always feel if empathy is at the heart of all storytelling, empathy is absolutely at the heart of scary stuff. Because while you always root for your main character, you root hard when you root in horror. Because the stakes are always so much higher. So I, I agree with that. I agree with the idea that if you strip away, like, you strip away the haunted house, you strip away the ghosts that I put in there, you strip you strip away, like, the scary trap doors and, and all the teeth, ultimately you have the story of a girl figuring out how to get through an experience that she doesn't really have the emotional wherewithal to really talk about. It's just all her emotion because she doesn't know how to communicate what she's been through. And who couldn't empathize with that? Who hasn't been in a situation where it feels so much bigger than what they are that they're like rendered mute from it, that they just are like, I have no options here. I don't know what I'm doing. That's like by day to day, mostly. Uh, yeah, also for you personally, do you usually start off with the core of the story and then like, all right, let's spooky it up? Or you're like, you know what would be so spooky? Okay, now how do I put a story into this spooky idea? It's both at the same time and sometimes neither okay <laughs> so it's a weird answer so with this appearing house the story about the girl who had cancer now i had cancer so this is oh, based wow. upon my experiences of dealing with trauma from a significant medical diagnosis being told this doesn't look good and then being told you're okay how that slingshots your existence so this experience happened to me and i i wrote a I wrote a book of poetry about it called Better Luck Next Year. And I was like, okay, got all the cancer feelings out. That's done. And I was like, time to sit down and think about my next middle grade. I know I want to write another spooky one because this is my jam. What do I want to do? And I was like, oh, i got to do a haunted house because I love haunted houses. So I started thinking about a haunted house story. And it wasn't until I got into the story that I was like, huh, you know, haunted houses are usually metaphors for a diseased mind in most horror. That's what it represents. Okay. It represents poor mental health what if mine represented poor physical health and what if the story is that she can't get out of the house because the house is her in the way you can't just discard your body and get a new one the two things just sort of like weeds just grew together and i was like that's the heart of my story and i have all of the other stuff simply because i was just like oh haunted houses are fun i like them (laughs) So, yeah, it's like kind of both. With Ghost Girl, I knew I wanted to tell a ghost story. And that story is very much about grief, which is what ghosts are. Ghosts are potential. Ghosts are what-ifs. They're all the things that could have been if they had been, but they're not because they're ghosts. It does metaphorically fit together, but I didn't purposely be like, I want to write about grief. I will write about a ghost. It was more like, these things feel like they vibe together. So let's see what happens. Are you the kind of person, do you go to all the haunted houses? Do you watch horror, a lot of horror? I watch a lot of horror. I would never go to a haunted house because if I went to a haunted house and someone touched me, I would die. <laughs> I would just straight curl into the ground and then dig my way through the earth until I fell into space. I wouldn't be able to handle it. My startle response, if a horn honks, like a car horn, can like put me into like absolute panic. I startle way too easily, but I love watching scary movies because when I get startled, I can just hit pause. It's really convenient for me. Do you scare yourself as you're writing your books or that's just, this is so much fun. No, (laughs) I 
answer that's scary. I will tell you some family members of mine, including the ones that they are age appropriate for and the ones that are my mom, they all think they are far too scary, but I don't think they're scary. <laughs> that's funny. Just to ask quickly, because I think a lot of people, when they think of horror, they're thinking of like goosebumps. Is that middle grade? That's middle grade. That goosebumps. is middle grade. Is that considered any sort of a meter or standard goosebumps? I think they're considered beloved, as okay. they should be. R.L. Stein is not only a great storyteller and a great writer, but also a wonderful human being because they were so popular and there were so many of them. I think they were a lot of people's gateway into horror. I feel like there's two types of kids. There's the kids who read the Goosebumps and then became like horror fans for life. And then there's the kids who just like at 10 years old was like, I don't know, I'll try the Stephen King and then also became horror fans for life. I was that kid. I was like, I'm going to read Stephen King much too early and much too <laughs> young, and it's going to warp my little unformed brain, and it's going to work out great. But, like, yeah. I definitely think when it comes to middle grade right now, a lot of the middle grade that exists right now exists because of Stein, because of the Goosebumps series, because of how popular they were. I think it gave publishers the faith that it doesn't have to be just one story. You can have a whole entire career writing scary stories for kids. Right. What would you say for a series of an unfortunate event, Lemony Snicket? That's not mm -hmm. specifically spooky, but it is kind of dark. It is dark. I mean, they're orphans. Their parents have been killed. And this man consistently is trying to destroy them. They are constantly in danger. But I wouldn't consider that horror. I feel like that's in the class of stories that's why are adults so terrible? Yeah, and why true. can't kids ever get a break? Yes. I don't remember the exact words, but so also this horror writer that I spoke with said there's kind of two types of horror there's the one of just darkness of, of the scary monsters, jump scares, that kind of. And then there's the darkness of, of how dark people can get. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And sometimes if you're lucky, you get both in one story. Like I recently read one. It was both an outside force. But because it was like survivalist horror and like the stakes were really high, it was also like, what are these humans going to do to each other? And it's not going to be good. Would you say middle grade can have both if done correctly or? Yeah, I think it definitely can. Again, I don't think there's any difference between anything you can write for an adult for when it comes to like scary, scary stories. And I think you can do for a kid, but you just, like I said, you have to bring them back out to the light at the end. You can't end it in bleakness. That's the pact. The kid is like, all right, I'm going to go on this journey with you, but like, we're all going to get through okay, right? And you're like, yeah, we're all going to get through okay. Let's do it. The ride's got to end somewhere or sometime. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The kids are going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, very good. We always wrap up with this fill in the blank of, I really like it when, and then choosing anything story or book related from covers to writers, editors, publishers, agents, whatever. I really like it when X, and I really don't like X. Or even libraries, librarians, anything. How would you okay. fill those in? I really like when writers celebrate every good moment on their journey and they do it loudly and proudly because this is a tough road and if you aren't cheering for yourself you should be i love when they surround themselves with good people who will also cheer for them i love that they celebrate themselves that's one of my favorite things that i get to see like on book twitter and i i scream for it every time and i can't think of a don't like as much so can i do another thing that i like <laughs> sure i'm too positive for my own good i also like when writers talk about the hard side of things it's why it's important to me that i tell the story about spending seven plus years on a book that died on submission and i talk about it a lot and a lot, i've had a lot of people respond to that story and be like i was gonna quit and now i feel like maybe i shouldn't and i was like no you shouldn't you shouldn't if this is really what you want to do 
keep doing it. Because the, the truth is, it's a business that profits off of art. And that's real tough combination. It gets thorny really quickly. And it's like, you put your heart and your soul into something, and the business world might say, nope, not for us, not profitable. It's tough to hear, and I think it's important when writers who have made it to the other side... Because there is no, there is no like in every book you have to go back to the acquisitions meeting and you have to hope that they're going to accept it unless you're like Stephen King and then you can write whatever you want and everyone's happy. Even when you're, when you have a book or two published or three or four, I just think it's important that the people who have made it to that side carry back the message that like, this was all my struggles too. It looks easy, but it's never been easy and it's been hard and I did it and I believe you can do it too. So yeah, those are my two likes. I can't think of a don't like. Good. We're spreading the positivity. There you go. There you go. I think people don't expect spooky writers, horror writers to be positive people, but look, it can be. I tell yeah. you, I saw the funniest meme the other day, and I had a picture of like a little cute little golden retriever sitting next to a ginormous werewolf costume, and over the golden retriever, it said horror writers, and over the werewolf, it said comedy writers. That's so and true. Like, that is so on point. It's not even funny. Like, we are a lovely, happy-go-lucky bunch. And we just put all our darkness on the page for everyone else. Yeah, and a lot of comedians in their own lives are dark people. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was the most on-point meme I've ever seen. I was like, well, this, there it is right there. Yeah, take help, people. If you're a dark person, you, you're going to write good comedy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, Ali, thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest today. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me and talking to me about horror books. I had a great time. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Work podcast featuring author and librarian Ali Melanenko. To find out more about Ali and her work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Work podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Work podcast. Check us out at eltenabam.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.